that nobody comes out of that film thinking, God, jazz teachers are such dicks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. everybody welcome to the sincast this is chris atkinson from cinema sins uh joined by barrett share from cinema sins hello and uh jeremy is apparently going to join us a little bit later uh but we have a very special guest today it is music supervisor andy ross yes uh who uh we got in contact with through scott sava uh who did animal crackers we've done a couple of episodes on on animal crackers which is on netflix now but uh welcome andy thank you so much it's great to be here it's a real pleasure yeah i always love being able to talk to someone who has a job especially like yours that i'm not exactly sure what it is that you do <laughs> you know that i have no idea either so that's good that's two of us oh but... good so then my first question just gets thrown right out the window i was going to ask you though what a music supervisor does and you can tell me in broad terms if you want to okay can i do something you might not like this can i ask you what you think a music supervisor does seriously because i'm very interested do you what do you think we do well <clears throat> so I read a little bit on Wikipedia, but if you were to tell me before I read that Wikipedia entry, I would have said, you're the guy who kind of comes up with songs that the director wants to use and maybe gets rights to them or something like that, or, or puts the song in the right place in the movie. It's pretty much, I mean, that's pretty much what it is really. Although there's a lot more to it because, um, every film's different, you know? So, uh, the role of a music supervisor is to oversee all music aspects of a film. So you have a composer, uh, you have a, you have the songs in the film. There are often clips being used of, you know, from Getty Images or something of the lunar landing or something where there's sometimes music attached to that, which is often not cleared as part of the clip which is very strange but so we always have to look out for little clips so anytime there's music in a film we have to be aware of it and note it down um and often the composer uh, the director has selected a lot of songs that they want to use or there are songs written into the script that they want to use so sometimes you'll be i'm being reactive and trying to clear when I say clear, I can go into that in a bit more detail in a minute, but trying to clear songs um, that the director wants, and then I'm filling in gaps, coming up with suggestions for other songs. Um, or there are sometimes when a director doesn't really know what kind of music they want, and then, you know, the palette's kind of mine to try and help them shape that. That doesn't happen very often. I'd say ordinarily I'm trying to find, you know, around half to a third of the music in a film. Hmm. Okay. What do you prefer? Do you prefer directors that do have the, uh, the, the, the big vision or do you prefer somebody that gives you a clean slate and says, you know, here's, here's what visually we're going for, but 
tell me what you think would work best here, there, and 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 everywhere. Well, personally, I love to facilitate the director's vision because hmm. I I kind of find it the same as a director saying to the cameraman, "I don't care what it looks like, just shoot it." It you know because <laughs> yeah. it's, yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. odd to me. I mean, you hope that this person has a full vision for the film. Now that's not negating a director that doesn't have this full vision because some directors will say immediately i love music but i don't understand it you know mm -hmm. so in that kind of instance it's totally fine there's no reason why a director has to know every facet of filmmaking but but i i one would hope and and i'd say 98 percent of the time it's the case you would the the, the needs you know there has to be a kind of vision for the music because it's so integral to the overall piece. So I prefer, um, I love it when I'm facilitating. Now, it makes you look technically less of a hero, but it's never about that, really. I mean, the mm. job to me is the love of music. I, I didn't know, uh, like you guys, I had n I've never heard of a music supervisor until I moved to America, which was 17 years ago. Maybe I'd heard about them a couple of years before, um, but I really... I had no idea it was a job. I didn't wasn't growing up at six thinking, Mom, Dad, I'm going to be a music supervisor. God damn it. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't know what it was. So when I found out what it was, I kind of fell into it because I was a manager of bands and I fell into it um, because I had to help clear songs. So when directors have a vision for the music, the, the thrill I get from being able to say to them, wow, within the budget that we have, I've managed to get you this song, which happened for Scott on Animal Crackers. They had picked um, the Queen song mm -hmm. for for that scene. And I, my first thought when I saw it, I love Queen. I love that song to pieces. I'm very proud to have worked on a film with that song in it. But my first thought when I heard that is, thanks a lot, guys. How am I going to clear that? You know, I mean, it's like, great. Whose idea was this? Oh, I've got Frank Sinatra covering the Beatles. It's like, great. Sounds brilliant. So it's, it's you know, but, but when I got that song, I mean, Scott will never forget me for that. And I spoke to the other director in Spain and he was like, Andy, you got the Queen song. This is only last week. You got the Queen song. I never thought you'd get that. So that's that's so rewarding because you've you've now you've now pulled something off for the vision that the creator of the film has and i love that and i'd much rather do that and you know in in every film you're picking up the pieces you know that you're filling in the songs in the gap usually with very little money left so all the big oh, wow. songs have taken the money and then i have to come up with the other four songs with very little money so i love doing that too so in an ideal world, I would say 80% of the music is chosen by the director and I pick up the other 20%. That would nice. satisfy me. And I think nice. it's just as difficult, you know, part of the skill of a music supervisor is being able to clear the music, license the music for the film, negotiate the fees, bring it in within a budget. That's as big a skill as somebody picking all of the music, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. say so. And uh, it looks like Jeremy is in. Hey, howdy, howdy. Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy. Jeremy, meet Andy Ross, music supervisor extraordinaire and Hello, wonderful Andy. person. Jeremy, it's nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. And I just want to tell you, as I said to the other guys, I really love your podcasts. I love your enthusiasm for film. And I'm very 
pleased and honored to be here. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Well, the, uh, the question I was going to ask after this was, you know, you were talking about how it was such a miracle to get that queen song. Um, how did you get that queen song? <laughs> well, if it's legal. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny cause Scott has, Scott has in his head a kind of, vision of how it happened and i think a little bit of it's a little bit fantastical um but i so it's now's time to explain to everybody listening so if you want a song for a film there you have to approach the rights owners of that song a song is split into two there's a master or the recording and there is the uh copyright of the song so if 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 we write a song now together the four of us we own that song, and if we sing it together, we own that recording. Now, if Elvis Presley covers our song, not likely, but if he did. <laughs> if the song is covered by Britney Spears tomorrow, Britney Spears owns that recording of our song, okay? But we still own half of the song because we wrote it. So with the Queen's song, I had to reach out to the record company who owns the recording, and I had to reach out to the publishers who own the song on behalf of the writers. So uh, I had to go to the record company first and ask them for to use the song, and they gave me an enormous quote of about mm-hmm. uh, a lot of money. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> six, six figures. So, um, And that's just for their half of it. So then um, I had to do a bit of finagling and I said, okay, I know this song is worth an awful lot of money. However, we don't have a very big budget. This is a relatively small film, even though the cast is (laughs) through the roof. Mm -hmm. Um, But we need some help here. So please try and help us. Uh, They have to go to the artists for approval. So what I usually do in instances when the quotes are too high is I try to get to the management of the band and plead my case to them. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, the members of Queen will have a lot of say in how much they would license their song for. I mean, it doesn't happen so much always, because you've got to remember, a publishing company may have paid Dr. Dre, for example, $50 million for his publishing. So they have mm-hmm. to try and recoup that. So the artist can't just carte blanche say, you know, got to do it for this much money but mm-hmm. big artists pretty much can to be honest so we went to the management of queen we got them a clip of the scene and basically you know i said to the publisher and the record label i think we could afford this much which is still a sizable amount of money it was a big part of the budget but it was worth it because it was such a an important song for the film mm-hmm. and they then agreed um to do it for that price and we managed to get the song um which was really good but that's a tactic i often use and again you're appealing you just want to make sure that before anybody turns down the use of a song or they overprice the use of a song they've been given all of the information now if an artist if queen had turned around and said we really don't like this project fair enough We've done all yeah. we can, but yeah. for somebody to say, no, nah, I'm like, well, wait, who said no? Who <laughs> was it that said no? Is that just you because you can't be asked to do it because it's not enough money to your top line? Or, you know, that's not a good enough answer. I want to know 
why and and I'll respect it. Uh, uh, you know, songs get turned down all the time. It does. It's not my job to say, well, I think you're wrong. It's it's not my song. So I accept it and I respect it. Did you ever have to do anything particularly insane to get a song uh, cleared for a movie before? And I don't mean like you know, <laughs> like like he had to go through uh, the traps of Saw or anything to do it. But I'm just saying. Did that, you ever like, get hung outside a balcony from your <laughs> yeah, from your ankles? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I'm sure I might be able to answer this question later. I was trying <laughs> to clear a Serge Gainsbourg song, and he cleared it. Imme- it was cleared immediately. And there was another writer on it who refused it. And I thought, and that's very unusual because it's like trying to clear a Sinatra song. He didn't write the songs, but the songwriters have made so so much money thanks to Sinatra that they'll go ahead, they'll go along with his estate, you know. And if the estate Mm. says, oh, we'll do this song for a tiny amount of money, the songwriter would usually say, okay, that's what they want, we respect that. So I was very surprised that this co-writer didn't... um, didn't <clears throat> agree to it and it was really annoying because the director really really wanted this song and it was it was named a person's character in the film was named after this song mm-hmm. so it was really odd to me it was you know if Serge Gainsbourg had turned it down I think we're done we can't do anything so <laughs> then I realized that a member of Nick Cave's band had worked. I, I found out that a member of Nick Cave's band had worked with this guy, and my friend manages Nick Cave. <laughs> <laughs> so I contacted my friend and said, "I really have to try and get to this guy and and find out why he's so against using this song because we have money to pay for it. It's not really a monetary thing. I don't understand why he's not agreeing to it." So. The member of Nick Cave's band, thankfully, very kindly, just emailed this guy and said, is there any way that I can pass this guy's information on because he's really passionate about this song? <clears throat> and that kind of got the wheels turning. And I'd been working trying to clear the song for like three months. I mean, I'd been on it for Jeez. a long time. And I was just hitting dead ends. And the publisher was saying, I'm really sorry. You know, we, we're happy to use it, but we just can't get him to agree and he hadn't it, it was almost like there wasn't a solid no it was it was it just something was wrong about it for me anyway somehow in the end right at the last minute he agreed to do it so that's probably the most circuitous route I've been especially as I was <laughs> trying to enlist people that that I didn't know but again you can only it was great that somebody did contact him, but on a human level, it's not that big a deal, really. <laughs> you know? You've got that. You've you've really got to spin a lot of plates because you've got to keep the director happy, but you also have to keep the your relationships within the music community, uh, and and you've got to pass along, you know, the context of the movie and and all that stuff. So you've got a very interesting balancing act between all these these players within the movie itself it's hard and there's another one to add as well you've got i'm i'm working for the director but i'm hired by the producer Mm. and Mm. they control the money Mm. and i you would you know the amount of films i've worked on when the director hasn't been told the budget that Mm. i have (laughs) and i'm not allowed to tell him or her what and i'm like you know uh so it's very difficult because 
And also, you're right, with the publishers and record label, I never want to go behind these people's backs. Mm. I'm not trying to do that. But the way I justify it is it's for the art. I've mm. loved music since I was eight years old, six probably. I've loved music. And I am passionate about music. And I want to hear a no. And I'm not one of these belligerent people. As I said, I totally respect somebody saying no. Songs get turned down all the time. Um, I totally respect it. I'm not going to push any further. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm going to phone his mum up, have a <laughs> word with her, see what's going to happen. But but the reality is you do have to spin a lot of plates, but I, I, I do have to – I don't think I've ever offended anybody in my pursuit of trying to clear a song, and I don't think I ever will because I think – it's pretty much over when the music supervisor says it's over because if they've done their job correctly, they've unturned every stone to try and mm. get the song cleared. And there are some songs when you, you know, you, it, it's which battle do you want, you know, pick your battle really. But yeah. there are a lot of spinning plates and the, the hardest thing is undermining these people that I work with every day that I'm hitting up for quotes and things because going behind their back and their bosses getting involved is never nice and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. But that's yeah. why I go to the management of the artist because the artist wrote the song. It's their song. Everybody else is just in on it, but it came from them. You know, it's like somebody's child. You mm -hmm. can't tell me about my child. You can tell me, but it's not your decision. It's my decision. Right, right, right. There's yeah. um, there's a, a person that I – I I sort of uh, relate to you, but I don't know if uh, if the uh, the the, the so-called uh, job title is vastly different or whatever. But the the first person I heard do this kind of work uh, was T Bone Burnett because he's here in Nashville, um, and uh, and the Big Lebowski was a was a big oh. one that he was on, and um, he's done a lot of Coen Brothers stuff and everything but they credit him as an executive music producer uh and i'm just assuming that it's the same kind of thing i uh, wish oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, okay so t-bone burnett um just you know a legendary musician i was watching that um bob dylan oh, that tour that they did oh and t-bone was the guitarist what a film that is oh wow um, just incredible. So T-Bone, T-Bone's a musician. I'm not, I was a singer in a band back in the day, which means I'm not really a musician because I was a singer. So I, <laughs> I don't really play instruments and I'm not musically trained. Everything I pick up is by ear. Um, T-Bone is an incredible musician. So I have executive music credits, music producer credits, usually from the fact that I've either brought financing to the project or I'm overseeing potentially, uh, I hate to say I'm overseeing another music supervisor, but I've, I've been brought on because it's a first time person working on the film. It's a musician or something. I've been brought on just to really make sure that all the legal stuff is being dealt with and there's not going to be any problems. Somebody like T-Bone Burnett is a musical. He's, he's very hands-on musically. I always think that a, music producer is the equivalent to a film director. Hmm. So T-Bone is intrinsic. He, if, if I organize a music session, 
I would hire really great musicians to do the session, but I would hire a T-Bone Burnett to run the session. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he might be writing the songs. He might be orchestrating. He might be doing whatever, but he is a creator of music. I'm never, the music supervisor is never a creator of music. And this has been one of the reasons why music supervisors can't win Oscars is the Academy say that they don't create anything. And Mm. the Guild of Music Supervisors has been arguing, but they're intrinsic to the overall quality of the film. And the Emmys have now started recognizing music supervisors thanks to the great work of the Guild of Music Supervisors. You can now win an Emmy and you can now win a Grammy. Um, Oh, wow. So, but the difference between T-Bone is he is a creative, um, he's a creative person on the show. He's totally different from me. And I bow down to him and I'd be mesmerized (laughs) to work with him because to me, that's my dream is working Hmm. with people like that. Doesn't mean we couldn't work hand in hand on a film together as, you know, he, he's probably got other credits, you know, and when he's doing, when he's working with the Coen brothers, he really is driving all of the music from a creative standpoint. And his team, I, I, my team would be like a backup to him. Mm. Oh, okay. To, to dot the I's and cross the T's and say, we need to get this paperwork. Okay, get that. Okay, we've got to do a deal with this record label because this singer sung on the thing. So that's very much when my role becomes a back office role. When I'm a music supervisor, I, I have a creative role because I'm coming up with ideas. So I hope that answers that question. I'm sure that there are a lot of things to di- else to dive into under the into that, but yeah, that uh, that does pretty much answer that question. That's uh, I, I, I a lot of times I will see credits in movies and I'll be like, well, they just kind of is that have an official designation or is that just like this other thing that's that you know I've seen before? Um, but uh, you have set it you have set it straight. So it's it's a musician, really. Uh, you know, Marius de Vries did it on La La Land mm. when he because you're getting somebody that could potentially write. You know, they, they they tend to be music producers, which, as I say, then makes them kind of the music director mm. in film terms. But obviously, a music director is slightly different. You know, it, it's so crazy in the music world. As I say, a music producer to me is kind of the director because he'll say to the band, great, here's your song. This is what I think we should do with the sound. Yeah. This is how we should make you sound. And this is how I'm going to do that. And you brought up uh, La La Land and you've worked with Damien Chazelle before, right? You did. uh, Uh, You were on Whiplash. Indeed. Yes. That was just a joy. (laughs) All right. All right. No, no, we're about to do 40 minutes on this this movie. <laughs> First of all, I we should acknowledge that Jeremy is now here. <laughs> we did. Did we really? Okay. Yeah, we I'm did sorry. just before we did on the original recording. We should we... we should still like every few minutes just acknowledge that I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's still here, folks. It becomes a recurring joke. <laughs> all right. Whiplash. There is so much going on with Whiplash from a music point of view that I'm so very curious on how you integrated yourself because it sounds like you work fairly closely with the directors of your, the the projects, right? Because they're they're saying we need this, uh, we need this, and and all that. So so you is that correct? Do you usually work fairly closely with the the directors of the the film itself? Usually, yeah. I mean, there are times when I. 
hardly have any contact with the director and that might be because of producers running post you know mm-hmm. on films you know people have does a director have final cut does a producer have final cut so sometimes um I've worked on films where I've hardly, you know, where I've had two emails with the director and I've never met them. I mean, I often don't meet directors in person, but I have mm. a big relationship with them on the phone and over the internet. But um, usually um, it's beneficial, you know, for me, I'd like to have as much involvement with the director as possible because, again, I, I like to say I'm here to facilitate whatever you have. I want to be honest with you and I don't like going on complete wild goose chases, but believe me, I've been on a lot and I'll (laughs) fight the fight, but I just want to be honest with you and say, you know, the chance of getting this song to me is 5%. Would you like me to go and try and get it? So I do, (laughs) I do like to work with directors. It varies. um, But I think more often than not, you know, it's pretty hands-on with directors. I mean, some films, you know, you're dealing with source music and there aren't, that's all you're dealing with, which is, you know, the, the music, the, the songs that you're licensing into the film. Other times you're helping with the composer, uh, helping finding a composer and, and picking the director's brain. I love to talk to the director and come up with a brief to send to the composer agents so that uh-huh. I've pulled out of the director's brain what they think they want to hear in their film, and then I try and translate it into a language that um, the the composer agents will understand and everything. I mean, I'm not. It, it makes me sound like I'm translating a foreign language. I'm not, but I'm trying. No, to no, be- no. That's that's amazing, actually, because you you in, in the obviously Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz have, have worked together for a long time and probably knew each other uh, going into Whiplash. But for other things where you're you're coming up with a, you're facilitating a composer. They have to know that context before they say, yeah, I'm going to do this. Right. Oh yeah. And, 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 and again, you, I have to be able to, again, with, with low budget things, we can't get it wrong. We yeah, can't right. fire the composer because they're not doing it right. <laughs> and the producers, you know, I mean, it's hard, you know, obviously the dancing about architecture, you know, that, that the famous quote that, thousands of people have claimed they mentioned it's very hard to talk about music and explain what people are talking about so i usually find i I talk to the director i get out of their mind without influencing them in any way i'll have my opinions and i'll i'll just say you know how do you hear the score and the director might say it's the one thing I, i i love music it's the one thing i i I just don't know how to explain what I'm talking about. And I'll mm-hmm. say, well, the, often the directors put in temp music, which composers often hate that, but it's a, a practically a norm now. So for a cut, you just use music from the social network or, mm-hmm. you know, chariots of fire or something mm-hmm. because it has the energy you need for the scene. So usually you get an idea uh, from producers and director how happy they are with the temp music that's in the film, if it's doing the job that they need it to do. And if I feel that it's re- it's not at all, I'll subtly say, hmm, have you thought about maybe something like this here? You know, so again, I'm not ever trying to force things in, but people need help often. Yeah. And they need, I, I look at myself as a, a moderator between the producers. I'm always in between people and between the often a bridge between the directors and the producers. And I'm often a bridge between 
the producers and the composer because the com- producers have to give notes. So you'll get a composer will write a cue, which I always think it's best if the director gives the first notes to the composer and then they're happy with the cue and then they let the producers hear it and then the producers give notes. Um, but the producer notes could suddenly be, oh, well, I really don't like that at all. It's just not working. And then you're like, well, we don't have a lot of time to keep changing that. So it's very important to get everybody on the same page at the beginning, if possible. And then you have to set up these sort of, you know, my job very much, and this is this is the coldness of my job, is ticking boxes. Right, I have right, 15 right. cues of songs and I have there's 60 cues of score. How many have we ticked off today? 20. Mm. Great. We're on schedule. And then you have to say to people, you can't go back and change this. The composer has to keep writing. And then at the end, if there's any time, the composer can go back to that. And it's hard to tell your bosses that. Yeah. You know, it's hard to tell your bosses they can't, you can't tell somebody you can't do this. I got <laughs> fired from a film because I had to explain, I worked for a company that invested money in movies to own the music rights, which mm. is how. I ended up working on Whiplash because that was one of the films that the company invested money in. So, But there were parameters of the deal that stated that our company would do music services on the film. Mm. So the di- you know, But the director would say, but I want to hire this person. I'd say, well, you can hire that person, but that's extra money. You know, so anyway, you can't, not that I would ever, you don't want to tell anybody you can't do this, but you're working for somebody. Mm-hmm, but you mm-hmm. have to set down guidelines because from my experience, I would say to them, you can do whatever you want, but I'm just telling you, it's likely to cost you a lot more money. And then they'll <laughs> go, I get that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question, but the, the <laughs> <laughs> I think I made a attempt too, but, uh, but it, it was, it was a nice, uh, it was a nice answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, in the case of whiplash though, uh, where it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, everything is kind of homegrown uh, because Hurwitz and Chazelle seem to have worked together. I think they worked together on that first movie. They went to university and, together, Madeline yeah, on a park bench. Park, they, park bench, yeah. They went um, to uh, university together and became and were great buddies from then on. So they, they well, well, Damien was talking about the idea of his films justin was talking about how he was going to score the films right and that they they work so everything is so enmeshed musically the music is the story for for that movie there was was there another um orchestrator that that did the big band uh yeah the the caravan and the whiplash and and that kind of thing yeah tim simonek so to let me let me try and explain uh, the genesis of the whole thing so I get given the script and I read the script and I, I, I obviously read a lot of scripts <clears throat> and a lot of scripts are not very good. Okay. Mm. The film <laughs> could, could turn out pretty good of a not very good script. You know, you could think, wow, I, I wasn't mad on that script. But this has turned into a really good film. So I wouldn't say I'm an expert on scripts, but a lot of the times I think to myself, wow, somebody's making a film from the script, you know, and it's like, (laughs) um, you know, and, 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 and it's kind of your, you know, but, but when I read, read Whiplash, I just thought, wow, this is great. I thought 
And I loved it that it was in the world of jazz. Now, I love jazz. I'm definitely not that jazz head that can tell you who the drummer was on that session with Charlie Parker and this and that. So I'm not a jazz head because, again, it would insult people. I can't tell you everything. I love Miles Davis. You know, I love a guy called Abdullah Ibrahim and Township Jazz from South Africa. I love jazz because, to me, my wife loves classical music. I'm classical music doesn't touch my soul like jazz does. So mm. I would put on jazz music to relax and chill out and just it takes me somewhere. So that's how I love jazz. But I would say Damien Chazelle is way more of a jazz head than me, for example, mm. but I love jazz. So when I read this script, I was thinking, God, I'm going to get to work on a film with loads of jazz music. That's amazing. Um, but my worry was that Charlie Parker's name was mentioned so many times in the script mm. that I thought, you know, there better be some money in this budget to do this. And knowing that my company had invested money, I knew that there wasn't likely to be a lot unless there was already some money in the producer's budget and they'd used our company to top up the budget. (laughs) So my worry was, okay, this needs to be music at the level of Charlie Parker, which Mm. is, you know, slightly scary. Um, (laughs) So... The first meeting we had with the producers over at um, Bold was was very interesting because Damien was there and I came into the room and we sat down and all had a nice chat. And then I said, so what's the budget? And they told me the budget, which I'm not even sure I should say what it was. It was about a tenth of what we paid for that Queen song. Wow. <laughs> um, so I was thinking, okay, so that's the budget. And I was thinking to myself, I know really killer musicians for sure that have won Grammys and everything that, you know, I mean, the thing about musicians is you get in a room with really great musicians to record a song and they do it once. And then I'm like, okay, should we go for this? And they're like, we've done it. And you're like, oh, well, what are we going to do? Now? You know, I mean, I say to them, it must be so boring being this good. Didn't you love playing music? I mean, isn't that why you did it? And you do everything in one take. So, I mean, I know musicians that can play stuff like that, but I was thinking, you know, this is, we're talking about some of the best musicians in the world that we're going to need to do this. So, Then I remembered, I said to them, okay, let me go away and get my head around this. Because they were saying, how would you do this? And I said, well, we have to record everything beforehand. Mm. I said, it's just too dangerous to do this. There's so much music flying around. And I said, there's so many little beats and breaks and stop and start and everything. I said, we'd have to record everything. And Damien said, that's what I was thinking. And that's what I want to do really is have everything recorded prior So I said, okay, let me go and think about this because obviously the big band sequences were were huge. Mm. So I went away and then I thought, oh, this guy came in the other day to see me called Tim Simonek, and he's the orchestrator for Michael Giacchino. Oh, He's been around (laughs) forever. And he's an amazing guy. And I'll, I'll be very brief about his story. I love this man to bits and I love his wife, Janet. I mean, we became great friends over this film. Um, He... Back in the day, he's in his 60s now. Back in the day, he was wanting to become a composer and he was knocking around Hollywood trying to get in there and do everything. He, he got a big opportunity to work for Mike Post, who I'm sure you know, Hill Street hmm. Blues, you know, just oh, every, 
every mm. theme tune ever written. Look him up, Mike Post. I mean, he must be one of the richest men in America, seriously. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite goes, like themes of all time is yeah, that Hill just, Street Blues thing. Just look, look him up, what he's done. I mean, I can't, for some reason I'm blanking, but every <laughs> theme from then, he, he did it. So Tim had this opportunity to work with Mike Post, and he went for a meeting, and it was all great. And Mike said, okay, so you can start next week. Well, then Tim started feeling ill, and he realized he went to the hospital and realized he had a tumor oh, God. near his spine. And they told him, we have to operate quickly. And he's in his 20s. So they said, this could kill you. This could paralyze you for life. They said, but we have to get Jesus. rid of this thing. So this is few days before he's meant to start working with Mike Post. So he went in and he came back and it paralyzed him, uh, his arm and his leg and everything. And he was lying in the hospital bed and his wife met him in the hospital, actually. She came to visit somebody else in the bed next door and he was being really sassy and sort of a bit mean. And um, they eventually, he, she was saying, you know, he was saying, I'm going to take you out. And she said, you can't even walk. You know, she wasn't being horrible to him, but he was being so sort of mean kind of to her. Anyway, they ended up going out together. But he said, I'm going to be able to conduct again. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a composer. I'm going to conduct. So time goes on. He does this. So he works for um Michael Giacchino, and he conducts all of Michael's scores, and he orchestrates them all. So he'd come into the office to meet me and said, I really want to do more scoring and stuff, um, so let me know if anything comes up. So about a week later, I phone him up, and I think, well, this guy's going to know the musicians because he's been around them forever, um, and he's worked all over the world. You know, He knows them in Europe. He knows them in everywhere. Australia. He's talking to me about this orchestra in Australia the other day. So he... I phoned him up and I said, listen, I've got this project. Are you into jazz? And he said, my favorite music is big band jazz. And I said, well, I think I've got a gig for you. Wow. <laughs> so I said, I don't have a lot of money, but we have to make the music to the level of Charlie Parker. I said, you're going to have to write some original songs. Can you do that? And he said, totally. I said, you won't be scoring the film because there's this composer called Justin Hurwitz. I said, but you'll be responsible with me for all of the jazz music that we're going to record. So he's my T-Bone Burnett, you see? Ah, he's ah. now my facilitator so i said to him okay so you're on board for this money you can do it for this we can record all the music for this and he said yeah let me just look it up so then my next meeting with the producers and damien a couple of weeks later i walked in and they have a kind of music guy at bold um and i said um so i found this guy tim simonek and the and the, the music guy at bold said he's going to do this film? And I said, yeah. He said, within our budget? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, guys, we can forget about the music it's taken care of. <laughs> wow, so he, he was aware, huh? Oh, yeah, totally aware of him. You know, and and so Damien, I introduced Damien to him, and they started working together on the songs. Um, and then, you know, we found, uh, we got budgets together for all the music, and... We uh, liaised well with Justin because Justin, what Justin was doing, which it was really fascinating what he did on Whiplash, was he, he was doing the score and he wrote a couple of jazz pieces himself. Um, but he was doing the score, but he, his vision and Damien's vision had always been to sample the recording sessions 
and mm. create a score from the samples of the recording session, which I didn't understand what they were talking about at the time. I was like, what's Justin doing over there by that drum? He's mm. <laughs> taking stuff from it. So, so he literally took a lot of the session stuff and entwined it into his score, which was really fascinating. Interesting. Um, so yeah, Tim Simonek became the guy that did the songs that facilitated the brilliance of Charlie Parker. Wow. Nice. Wow. So those were those, the, the caravan whiplash and things like that. That's, it's not really based on anything. Those are original pieces, correct? Uh, no, Damien. Okay. So the other thing I need to tell you is I've never worked with anybody that has such attention to detail as Damien. Hmm. Damien, everybody that won awards or everybody involved in this film, it's it's all Damien because every single beat of this film he he had envisaged it. So hmm. every single person was facilitating what he wanted, and he's such a beautiful person to work with that he just it would be like okay, so we have to do this, 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 and this, and he knew you know he can write music and everything, so he knew everything that he was doing. So he he just. He just, he just, you know, brought everything to the table. Whiplash and Caravan are songs that existed, and Damien used to play them when he was in a jazz band. Oh, so, oh wow. So um, he basically <clears throat> brought those to the table. So Caravan, for example, and um, Whiplash, the song, we had to license the publishing for those two mm. songs. Mm. And there's a story in that because... <laughs> Um, Whiplash was pretty straightforward. Um, Caravan, I had to license it. And it's very difficult when you have a script and you're doing, these are all called on cameras because they're, they're performed music mm. on camera. So you can cut them out in the edit suite, but you're pretty much tied to them. Um, you mm. know, you can't redo the footage. That's why you pre-record them because you have no control over the music. You can't mm. alter it. Um, so so when you're reading a script and you need to clear a song, you have to send a thing called a quote request. And in that quote request, it tells you that the description of the scene and the duration of the use. Now, it's very difficult to know from script pages how long a song's going to be. Sure. And also, if you're stopping and starting, if you play a song and then have a gap of about 50 seconds because people are talking in the lobby or something, that's an interrupted use. So, And you have to tell them this. You have to be very accurate with what you're trying to license. So I – and then I, you, you try to give people the script pages. So you say to them, here are the script pages. Um, you tell me if you think this is different from how I've described it to you. So I cleared uh, the song for a fee, which I thought was a very reasonable fee. Um, and then when the film was finished, the head of the publishing company saw the film and said, how much did we get for that song at Sundance? And they said this much. And he went mad. He said, oh, no. it's going to be a lot more <laughs> than that. So I get this phone call after I've had a signed piece of paper saying, oh, we've got a problem with this song. And I'm like, what do you mean we've got a problem with this song? You told me this was all fine. 
and it wasn't. And it, it went, you know, the fee. Let's put it this way: two noughts were added to the number. <laughs> oh, Jesus! So I then had to phone my boss and say, um, uh, "Don't know how to tell you this, but uh, we've got a problem." And I said, "But we have a signed piece of paper, so I think we can all, you know, work this out." So again, I'm not trying to get people into trouble because there is no, there is no. Um, you know, how people value something is how they value it. It was one of those unfortunate situations where in good faith, everybody's acted correctly. Mm -hmm. And nobody was saying to me, you know, you're responsible for this. And these things blow over because they're, it's the cost of doing business as it were. Mm. Um, And it all worked out in the end. But at the time it was horrible because I was saying, because what produced, nobody ever wants to litigate. So what always happens is 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 there's some deal made, you know. So mm-hmm. that was a bit of a a curveball that occurred at the uh, that I hadn't foreseen, which again shows that it doesn't matter how much you plan for stuff, there is an element of surprise because we're dealing with art. Yeah, and yeah. you know they were saying but i didn't realize how much the song was involved in the film and to me the reason i think they say that is because the song is so brilliant yeah, yeah. and brilliantly performed yeah too. and again it's worth money it yeah. is worth money and i do i would say at the end that probably they were 10 percent over what was was really reasonable okay mm. so yeah. And you always want to be looking out for the artist in the world I'm in. And it blew over into something that didn't matter. I only bring this up because these are the rigors of my job. And you can imagine how stressful that is when you've suddenly got this film that people are going, you know, they say no hit, no writ, don't they? But we had (laughs) covered ourselves. I'd covered myself properly and I'd been through the correct protocol. So it was quite scary. Yeah, a situation. And this is this is why you win an award for that, correct? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, a, you won an award for Whiplash, right? It was the sympathy award. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, you have the stress. Your hair turned white. Oh, my hair fell out. My beard turned white. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I did win an award for that, but and it was a team award, in my opinion. I know people always say that, but I mean, it. it you know, you. I was fortunate to work on such a magnificent film. And I'm very proud of of my involvement in it because, um, and here's the crazy thing. I haven't watched that film since I finished it. Oh, wow. Saving it for my two daughters. I want to watch it with them. Oh, Um, wow. And I I want to, because you see a film so often when you're working on it in Mm. various stages. You know, you might see a film and it's two and a half hours long and it turns out to be an hour and a half long in the end. So you keep, watching it and by the end of it you're kind of bored of it i remember going to the screening when it was finished and thinking wow you know wow but i'm really looking forward to watching it again but i want to watch it want to sit down and say see what you think of this but i'm very very proud of of the music in that film and it was teamwork it was fantastic teamwork from everybody involved musically the music editor let me tell you this so a music editor is a person that I can send them a song 
and say, can you put this in this scene and make this sound good? And they'll send it back and I'll think, how did they do that? How did they move the voice and do this and do that? And, you know, because I'm just thinking I can move it a couple of seconds to the right or a couple of seconds to the left. So a music <laughs> editor can just, I mean, it's uh, unbelievable uh, the things that music editors can do. And Richard Henderson, his name was, he was amazing because he was every single note and drum beat and everything that we recorded, he was in charge of that on the set. And he was in charge of that in post so that the editor could say, oh, was it this file or that file? I don't know. I'm having a spliff. I have no idea. You know, it's just music. I mean, he was like absolutely knew everything. And wow. he was a, a hugely unsung hero because the amount of files that we ended up recording uh, for that, for all of the big band stuff was incredible. And he was on it completely. There was never God. a sort of hiccup. And Damien was totally on it. You see, if, if Damien didn't know what he was doing, there'd have been so many moving parts that it would have it could have fallen apart. Um, yeah. But because he knew, because the leader was so, and if he had been wishy-washy, I don't know, I don't know, what do we do with this? I mean, when we were doing the recording session, we were phoning up the producers saying, we need another 20 minutes. It's going to cost more money. Can we do this other 20 minutes? We need another 20 minutes. We need another this. It's going to cost, we need to keep the horns. We need to do this. You know, so if we didn't know what we were doing, it would have been a disaster. So so his vision, I mean, he's he's 98% of that film, I think. And that mm. goes, you know, you think of the performances um, were just incredible. But you'll mm -hmm. ask, you know, J.K. Simmons, ask him, he'll say the same as me, I'm quite sure. I mean, he'll say, mm -hmm. oh, well, it was laid out there in front of me. And I'm not saying that they weren't remarkable. Yeah. They were remarkable, but everybody had a lot of good stuff to work with. And none of us, I don't think any of us had a clue that this film was going to be seen, you know, would turn out like it was, like it did, and that people would love it. But I think, Barrett, I was saying to you in a conversation earlier that um, it's got nothing to do with music in a way, this film. I mean, hmm. you, you have these jazz t people i've talked to that loved the film and then i was working with this jazz professor from dartmouth and i said oh what did you think of whiplash and he's like oh, <laughs> uh, you know i don't really want to ruin our friendship but I, I just um you know it's just not how we are and i said yeah but that's not the point right right said, nobody right. thinks that nobody comes out of that film thinking god jazz teachers are such dicks you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know they just don't they just it's it could be athletes it could be runners it could be swimmers yeah. it could be yeah. anything it's it's just being pushed to the level and you know jk simmons's character i kind of you know i went to boarding school so i know how what it's like to get pushed to the limit with straps and things mm. and the mm. point is i kind of admire that in a way because it is bullying, but it's trying to get excellence. Yeah. So yeah, and that's the that's the tightrope of that movie. I can't wait for you to watch this again, by the way, because it's going <laughs> to blow your mind. Uh, that's the tightrope of that movie is that every time you watch it, and I've watched it a million times, you can root for uh, Fletcher. You can root for J.K. Simmons's character in one time, and then you can absolutely hate him the next time, right? Because because he's wrong, but he's right. But he's wrong. Yeah, yeah he's wrong. <laughs> and he is wrong. He is wrong. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. Can I ask you, so when you first watched that movie, what did you think? What did you know about it and what did you think? I knew very little about it. I knew nothing of uh, Damien Chazelle at the time. Uh, Maybe had seen Miles Teller and something. And of course, knew J.K. Simmons. But all I had seen was was really the uh, the the spectacular iconic images of of Fletcher in that black shirt, just absolutely eye fucking the shit out of Miles Teller. <laughs> that was that's yeah. I mean that's the delicate way to put that poster. Uh, but uh, uh, immediately when I saw it, because uh, I have a music background and and I've I've had personally a few uh, teachers like that, uh, a, a chorus teacher and a band teacher that were like that. And, uh, I was immediately transfixed. I was, I was nervous and stressed the entire time, but I was enthralled. And the music itself is, is what just really hit me in the, in the boys. Like, uh, it, it just really, I, I love that type of music and I love that sort of precision. And so, yeah, immediately I was a proselytizer of, of that film and have watched it several times. Mm-hmm. And I, I know this sounds weird because cinema sins and everything, but um, I've seen a few people who've commented on it, you know, like jazz musicians and stuff. And the, the things they're picking out again, you just think, but you're really missing the point. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's not, you can never, there can never, you know, somebody saying, yeah, well, when they show the close-ups of his wrist, that's not really how you, you know, and you're like, no, but I mean, the, the semantics of that, it yeah. doesn't matter because it works. I remember the car crash scene, right? I hope mm-hmm. that's not a spoiler. Uh, um, no. The car crash scene. I remember reading that in the script thinking, that's never going to stay, right? Thinking, <laughs> yeah. We've got to get rid of that. Because that seemed to me to be unbelievable. And it kind of is. But I think with great films is when you're in, you're in. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yep. you can again, you guys would know more than anybody else. You can let things slide. And I don't know what you thought about that car crash scene, but for me, I thought to me that would never make it to the final cut. Oh, here's the thing. I, when I saw that, I was like, Oh, come on. That was the first time I saw that. I was like, Oh, come on. Um, but then, but because I love that movie so much as well, um, you start making excuses for it and you say, well, this guy is so driven and he's got, he's popped up on so much adrenaline. He could do that. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what you end up saying. Like, yeah, even though that's impossible. Oh, it's possible. Yeah. He would do it probably. Yeah. How the sequence unfolds is, is that, you know, he's screaming at this guy on the phone before, before it happens. And then, you see him almost in real time, like almost bleeding out to where he, he literally can't make that hand go anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. it's like, that's the only thing that will slow this guy down is where he physically cannot do this. And so, yes, you're right. It It is uh, an, are you kidding me type of thing, but also it plays perfectly. Well, it and then he didn't like, that's the thing. Chazelle's not done there. It's he forgot his <laughs> sticks uh, he comes back and he's bleeding on the drums. Um, there's just uh, like it's there's a never ending like uh, chain reaction of things happening mm-hmm. where you're just like, there's no way this guy can get through this. No, and uh, makes it all the more satisfying when he does. And then the ending's pretty spectacular in itself. Yeah. It's just, oh, it, yeah. And then it ends so well, doesn't it? It's like 
Oh my god, I'm getting chills thinking of it right now. I've never seen an ending like that. That uh, that is what really exhilarated me uh, is the fact that that is the moment where you have that battle with yourself of is this guy right or wrong? He is wrong, but and and they're both saying fuck you to each other, like literally and figuratively. But they're also both in sync. Yeah. And and like uh, it's it's just absolutely perfect. And and also they're doing it in public, aren't they? They're saying "fuck you." Oh in yeah, public. yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and this is all such a, this is all that it's ever been about. But <laughs> however, the egos are still coming through. It oh was, my god! <laughs> it was. I mean, it was. It was a ride. I mean, it was a ride. And I listened, did you go to Sundance? I didn't. No. I mean, the thing was, I was working so hard at this company. We, it was crazy because I went from having supervised two music films, which I supervised because um, I was a manager of the composer and nobody knew what to do with the music. And I'm like, uh, you're going to have to license that. <laughs> like, really? Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I, don't know. I guess I'm the music supervisor. <laughs> um, so there were just so many movies. I mean, I turned up at this company to help set up the music department and I walked in and there was a hard drive and they said, okay, and these are the 15 movies you're working on now. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, it was the music. And again, I need to give a shout out to the guys, uh, Chaz Barsamian and Megan Persons, who are my business partners now, who strangely enough are both lawyers um, uh-huh. in my music company because they were the ones that helped get through the legal stuff of the song in the film in whiplash where there was the trouble so they were a huge help and it shows that you need a big team of people and in music licensing and everything uh lawyers are very important because you know everything has to be done and and with music the dangerous thing about music is if i sign a contract with a film i there's all these indemnifications right so if if something goes wrong i can't make them pull the film But if you use a song in a film that isn't cleared, Disney can be told to take Frozen out of the cinemas. No. Cease and desist. Get it down. So it's the most dangerous thing in the world. So I have two great business partners in my company, Exit Strategy, who, you know, we formed a great bond when we were working on so many films together me doing the creative them doing the business side of it uh and it was a baptism of fire but we thrived off it and you know better for it so um you know so i didn't go to sundance which was really sad uh would have been lovely but um i saw it at a, a, a friends and family kind of screening which was really really good Oh wow, that's in yeah. Looking at your 2014, you had your hands full for sure. <laughs> yeah, and that and that's yeah. And there's some things I because I was overseeing the whole thing, and often there was nobody there that could do this. I was mm. getting we had some interns who are now supervisors and gone on to really good things. A lot of the interns we had, but you know, it, because it's so dangerous making mistakes in music it was mm. very hard for me to take my hands off anything yeah, um, I can imagine. and it was quite stressful but again those are the ways you learn aren't they i mean mm. you're imagine working for netflix i mean you probably <laughs> got 50 times that much work on your, on your plate or amazon 
you know. All right, guys, I am going to shut up because I can go on all day, and you guys need to ask a few questions well, and everything. Uh, I wanted to do an aside here because you brought up Mike Post, and might as well go ahead and go through a lot of these TV shows that he did. Uh, these separated into two big groups on this. Uh, one, I believe it's like if he did any kind of composing on any particular episode, that's where he's credited. And then there, then I think he's the main composer on some other stuff, but I'm missing a few, uh, a few series here, but great, greatest American hero Jeez. is on there. Uh, Hill street blues, Hardcastle, McCormick riptide, um, uh, stingray, uh, the latter day Columbo's that were in the late eighties and nineties cop rock, um, yeah. um uh, <laughs> which was an all-time uh tv experiment that just didn't work uh wise guy um uh he also did quantum leap um and then uh he, he did a bunch of other stuff here but then in the other section of this where it looks like he's sort of the main uh composer um uh so it's got there's a a team yeah, um, these are theme songs, aren't they? Uh, I believe so. I believe, and and he's he it, because he he's shown credited on every episode, right. so I'm assuming that's what it is. Uh, so uh, a lot of the stuff that I just mentioned, like Greatest American Heroes on here, uh, Hill Street Blues, uh, Magnum PI. Um, uh, he also did um, Quantum Leap, Wise Guy, Hunter, wow. uh, Silk Stockings, um, Doogie Howser, MD. <laughs> um la law um, wow. uh news radio um the rockford files, a rockford bunch of files that theme song is one of my favorites uh, i'm nice. it because you have to pay royalties but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, just brilliant uh, uh dragnet nypd blue oh. uh and then law and order Jesus <laughs> that's Christ. the big one that's the big like boom like after all of that it's law and order he's credited on 405 episodes of the he Rock. did the doom doom yeah <laughs> yeah the easiest uh, money no. he ever made no no <laughs> doubt the, music, the amount of music that that man has on network tv i mean seriously he's got to be one of the most successful musicians of all time oh no doubt do you know him, Andy? No, God. Oh, you need to get to know him. Oh my God! I hear he leaves golf matches with in his helicopter because he has. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you can see why Tim Simonet. You see, I mean, can you imagine just getting in with somebody like that and then it not happening because of? Oh, it's incredible, mm-hmm. but yeah. incredible. I mean, what a career Mike Post has had, and just amazing. How can people? How can he write? that much music this is what i always think for a composer they're pouring out these new melodies and ideas they can't rip anybody off right right how do you do it i mean can you imagine sitting i'm sitting down before a film thinking god i got 15 songs i have to replace or clear and a composer's thinking i've got 60 minutes of music to write Mm. yeah what if the muse has gone on holiday or something or has covid what happens then (laughs) yeah yeah i uh there's a a thing that I've been noticing recently where, uh, where a movie will come on from the nineties or something like that. And I'm like, I don't hear music like this anymore. Why is that? And it's because the composer has, has died, unfortunately. But like, 
I'm like sitting there going, they used to do a lot of these composers that, that, uh, that uh, were running around at one point, they, they're not, they're not copying other people, but they do kind of copy themselves in a way, a kind of yeah. A, yeah. a branding type of thing. And I think they have a lot of themes in their head that they can move in other directions. James Horner was one of these guys that I felt like was, was like this. Um, uh, you know, and you, and I was the other day, it was a movie that was on. And I was like, that sounds like so-and-so and sure enough it was. And I was like, yeah, you don't hear that music anymore. So I think that's what happens, uh, with, with, with these people. A lot of times it's just like, they're, they're constantly finding new branches from where, uh, you know, they start when they had a big theme at one point and now they're just finding new ways to, uh, to yeah. do that thing. And there's a word they use quite a lot, homage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that sounds like uh, Elmer Bernstein. Oh, it's an homage. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice. Uh, but, you know, it is a tough job and it's incredible. And that's a, there's, a, there's a person you need to speak with. Uh, is Bear McCreary, who did Animal Crackers. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. What a guy he is. I mean, God, so meticulous. He does these things. How this guy has the time in the day, I do not know. He's got a kid and everything. He asked Scott to send you this thing he did. He breaks down his score cues after he's done a big film, and he writes these sort of almost essays on every cue about wow. what inspired it, what you know, um, where it came from, what sounds he used. And I looked at this thing he'd done, and he's done it on quite a lot of his films, and I thought to myself, my God, I mean, they belong in the Library of Congress, these things, because it's mm. just absolutely incredible. And he's such a lovely, a humble person. And he's so brilliant. He's just so brilliant. I mean, you, you should really, I'll, I'll, if I can help, I will help. You need to get him on because he's such a great storyteller and he's so talented. And I really don't know if I've, I only got to know him through Animal Crackers. I don't really don't know if I know anybody more dedicated to his craft that I know, more than Scott even, who, hmm. you know, bleeds sketching and everything. <laughs> um, wow. Bear is so thorough, and he's done so many. He'll be able to t talk about this different styles, you know, sea shanties that he did in Black Sails and the amazing theme song he wrote for Black Sails and, then he does something else. So, you know, I think we have actually discussed uh, talking with him at some point. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll track him down. Yeah. Somewhere. You track him down. He can't refuse <laughs> you guys. <laughs> he can't. You're right. I got, here's another, here's another thing. Does this ever come up? Let's, let's take an easy one here. So like, um, obviously if you're doing like, let's say a romantic comedy or whatever, and, uh, uh, let's say the director has no idea about the content of every breath you take, which is a uh, considered right. as, you know, a, an all time love song, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, you know, do you ever have any input on that type of thing where, where you tell them, or do you just kind of casually mention it where you're like, this song isn't really about the thing that you're putting in the, in the movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are times like that, but it's, it's, more often than not, it's like you do realize that this song has been used 17,000 times. Yeah. <laughs> Spirit in the Sky is in every oh, Vietnam movie. Yeah, and, and um, 
what's that one? Journey, don't stop believing. Yeah. yeah. Even he said, I had to try and clear don't stop believing for a film called The Losers, Joel Silver yeah. film. Um, I wasn't supervisor. My friend Amani Rama was supervisor on that. Um, but I had to try and get a quote for Journey. And I was saying to the producers, look, this press stating that the person that wrote this said that he'd never once, if he ever hears this song again, he's going to kill somebody, right? <laughs> he's sick of it. It's over. He's done with it. And in the end, it gets to sort of Jimmy Irvine and, and the head of the studio, you know, doing the deal <laughs> for an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. So usually more than, you know, you do realize what this song is about. It's more about you do realize that everybody's used this. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes they don't care and sometimes they do care. And does it really matter? But I, I kind of think sometimes it doesn't matter. But if you're using it as a really important song in the film, I think it really matters because it's always trying to find, for me, it's, it's almost more exciting breaking a song that no one's heard than using something, you know, it just gets lazy. I mean, I don't want to go into the film Us because I heard you talk about Us. Uh, you did a whole <laughs> thing on Us. And I thought that Get Out was one of the best films I've seen for I don't know how long, just thought it was mm-hmm. amazing. And yeah. I thought Us was the Emperor's New Clothes. I detested it. Mm-hmm. And I know that you guys didn't. And I know that it's uh, th- there's elements of it that are amazing. But I heard them talking about the music and everybody, you know, obviously using Fuck the Police is great. But, mm-hmm. you know, used so everybody going, oh, my God, he did this and that. And I'm not dissing that film in, in any way because I, I justify it by saying that Get Out is one of the greatest films I've seen for years, right? I absolutely mm. loved it, okay? And I was just – I didn't like the premise of Us when I heard about what it was about. I didn't like the trailer when I saw it. I think the acting's great. I think the way it's shot is a really good film but I just found things annoyed me, you know? So many things annoyed me. And again, there's a lot of homage in that film. Oh, yeah, no kidding. uh, You know, I I don't know. I don't know what my point is here, but I just found, I don't know. I think sometimes the use of songs and things can be, I didn't like, I didn't like some of the music in that film. And again, this will sound real sour grapesy and who the hell am I to ever say that? This is my personal opinion as a lover of film and everything, you know? Mm -hmm. Are you saying that the, the songs that they used were not good or are you saying that the placement of the songs or the meaning of the songs were not good? It felt to me like, okay, now I can have whatever I want. I'm going to use all of this. Okay. Mm. Ah. I I can see that. Yeah. That's what it kind of felt like. And I don't mean, Hey, were I in that position? I'm quite sure that's exactly what I would do. I've always <laughs> wanted to use this dog. I've always wanted to use that. So again, I'm not trying. I, I'm not trying to diss anything here. It's my right. personal opinion. And sometimes, uh, some a director will say, "I really want to use this song," and I'm thinking to myself, "But you know, this is exactly what somebody would kind of expect here. Mm, Can we not yeah. try and?" Can we not try and find something else? And again, it's not my film and it's an opinion. And 
I've been wrong so many times when people have said, oh, that was the best song on the thing. And I'm like, okay, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have actually picked that. So <laughs> it's, it's just an opinion. And that's why it's so difficult. But um, I don't know. I just find when it, it, you know, oh, the Stone song sounds amazing. Well, yeah, of course <laughs> it sounds amazing. Because it is amazing. And it sounded amazing for 50 years because it's an absolute classic. Right. <laughs> but, you know, if you find an obscure Credence Clearwater Revival song, for example, that somebody's like, I've never heard that, and it opens up. So, you know, I mean, to me, that's really exciting. That's yeah. the that's the the real thrill. Um, that's sort of what I uh, I think Tarantino does. Uh, oh God! I mean, he is just amazing. I mean, I was trying to think of some of my favorite uses of songs. I mean, uh, I mean, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Stuck in the Middle, Steeler's mm-hmm. Wheel. In mm-hmm. that scene, and it's a juxtaposition. It's exactly what you don't expect. And most of the, mm-hmm. the, the the music I love in film are things you don't expect. It's it's wrong, and you right. you know you <laughs> don't want a beautiful song in. Is it a beautiful song? Well, it is because you know it's kind of lilty, and he's even dancing to it, isn't he? He's like standing there dancing. Yeah, yeah. Michael Madsen is just sort of. You know, just about to slip the guy, and he's like, I'm stuck in the middle. Just, yeah. <laughs> and, and he uses them amazingly. Uh, Son of a Preacher Man, Dusty Springfield has used oh, in yeah. Pulp Fiction when John Travolta's in the house and they, she's getting ready, and it's just amazing. Just the acting's amazing, and you think they're going to dance to it or something, and then it stops and they mm-hmm. leave. Yeah. So it's just kind of there in a way, to pad out the scene, but it's magnificent, isn't it? Because it's so beautiful. And I don't mean that it's there to pad out the scene, because that's an insult. He's he's just brilliant at the way he picks it. Sorry, go ahead. No, you can hear that. You you cannot hear that Steeler's Wheel song without thinking of that scene. No. It's and it's and 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 weirdly, it's the same for me, even though I know Barrett and a bunch of friends of mine heard that heard the uh the pixie song on fight club uh before the fight mm. before fight club but the that song at the end of uh where's my mind at the end oh. of fight club is 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 burned into my brain yeah. as that as that movie's song uh at this point uh and i think if you can do it that way then uh then you know you're doing something special but those uh, are the dream moments you see and those don't happen a lot of the time we're putting music into bars that is, you know, it's just, is this going to get in the way with the dialogue? No, it's just got to be something that's in the background, but to be able to find those songs for like a montage scene or something mm-hmm. that to me, when I was I, from the music industry and the sum of the parts of when a song works with a, an image is, is, blows your mind and probably the biggest one for me is the end by the doors at the beginning of the oh, yeah. now and yeah uh, it's the opening scene of the film and it's called the end and it's <laughs> like, what do you think's gonna happen guys <laughs> yep. and yep. It's just, it gives me shivers and it's just amazing and then there's another one have you seen agire wrath of god by Werner herzog i have i oh. have so I love Werner Herzog. I love twisted things. I love Lynch. I love Herzog. I like things that are wrong. 
Um, <laughs> and you have Machu Picchu, right? And apparently the cast was saying to him, what are you doing? Why aren't you <laughs> shooting Machu Picchu? We've come all this way through the jungle. You forced <laughs> us to walk here and you're not even showing it. He goes, I'm not interested in Machu Picchu. I just want the woods, right? (laughs) (laughs) And Klaus Ginski, I've heard him on interviews. They said, did did you threaten to kill him on that film? He goes, no, it was on on Fitzcarraldo, not that one. He said, said, but on that one, I was so pissed off because we'd walked for 21 hours, (laughs) turned up at Machu Picchu, which you weren't going to film, and there was no food. (laughs) yeah yeah so i and he said and i was sleeping on a raft or something oh that was probably (laughs) first but anyway but the music in that film so you've got this amazing vista of these uh, and people dressed in 15th century costumes a lot of people Mm. not cgi these are real people hundreds of people carrying somebody on a, a sort of thing down the mountain and then this 70s electronica music comes in mm. by a band called Popple Vu. And it's just so wrong that it's absolutely <laughs> perfect. I mean, it's, it's my favorite piece of music to picture I've ever seen, I think. I would, I, you know, obviously we'll, we'll, you know, won't be able to talk to Klaus Kensky anymore, but I would love to hear how in the world Werner Herzog and Klaus Kensky uh, continued making films with each other, even though they hated each other, apparently. <laughs> and and I, I I and it and it's crazy, you know. It's it's uh, you know Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo are are easy to uh, uh, you know to confuse because they are in the jungle for the most part in both of them. And uh, you know <laughs> he must have been a madman to have done Aguirre and wanted to do Fitzcarraldo after that. Oh yeah, and by the way, let's lift an entire boat over a oh. mountain. Yeah, uh, why? Yeah. You'd be like, why? Why are we doing this? Can you not do something else? Isn't the special effects and things that people use? Right. Oh, right. Just uh, let us move this boat. Yeah. <laughs> That's my Herzog. It's so good. There's, there's, there is a there's a clip of Kinski on Letterman, right? How could you? Oh get wow, I didn't even know he did yeah. Letterman. There's a clip of Clint, uh, Kinski on Letterman. The Letterman. There's a story he tells. But Letterman's saying, so you've worked with him on two films, right? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, and you hate the man, right? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he said, said, would you ever work with him again? He goes, of course. (laughs) He said, of course. He said, he phones me up at like one in the morning. Of course, it's one in the morning. You know, probably hasn't spoken to him for years. And he says, I have this crazy idea. And he's like, yeah. And so he's telling a story about... Fitzcarraldo, you've got to watch this clip on YouTube of, of, of Kinski on Letterman. He's telling this story about Fitzcarraldo and he's, uh, he's saying, yeah, and I'm like going down these rapids and there's no security people there. There's nobody to stop me drowning. And he goes, Werner's in a speedboat. He's fine, right? And he says, I'm tied to this thing. And he goes, and it got so dangerous that I had to cut my costume at the back. And he goes, and Werner's saying, don't do it like that. Do it like this. He goes, who directs people at a time like that? And he said, and I'm thinking to myself, shut up or I'll throw you into the piranhas and they'll eat you in 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And he looks at David Letterman. He goes, are you okay? And David Letterman goes, yeah, this is just kind of an interesting story. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just amazing. And those are the sort of people, aren't they? I mean, you can't, you can't do greatness without being slightly twisted, I don't think. I don't think yeah. there's, you know, pushing, there's Herzog's pushing these people to the limit, like Whiplash. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care about, he does, he cares about, um, he obviously cares about human beings, but he's going to get what he wants. That mm-hmm. film cost $300,000. Unreal. Aguirre. I mean, Fritz Corralda probably cost less. And I think they were making it over four years. Jesus. It's unreal. Wow. <laughs> I mean, but you just amazing films with no money and very difficult to make. I mean, imagine if a studio had made Fritz Crowder. It would have been in the hundreds of millions, wouldn't it? Oh, for oh, sure. Jesus. It would be like the plot of Tropic Thunder. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much time we have left with you, but uh, just to uh, touch on a few highlights, and if you want to, and if you want to uh, say, "Oh, but you're skipping this," uh, by all means, uh, talk about that movie. But uh, the ones that some of the other ones that stand out on your credits, uh, Super, which is James Gunn. Oh yeah, uh, was an early one for you. Uh, were you just kind of getting into the whole thing at this point? Do, was there anything memorable about Super? Yeah, that was crazy. That was crazy, and I think uh, Liz Gallagher um, really supervised that. What was my credit on Super? It says music consultant. Yes. Super. Okay. So Liz Gallagher, um, who's a wonderful music supervisor was supervising that and because i was head of music at the company we worked at i was kind of overseeing it and it was so there was to me it was it was a very scary phase because there was so much music flying around Mm -hmm. and we went down for a meeting with james gunn and um again he's one of those people that has great ideas and he's pushing everything he's just pushing everything almost to the limit and I remember it being just, we got out of the meeting and it was like, whoa, we've got a lot of work to do here. <laughs> right? So, yeah. I mean, and I, I liked the film and I thought, you know, I mean, it was the, the people that were in it, it was just a great cast and everything. But I remember my real memory of that was it was a lot of sharp deadlines. It was, it was, it was stressful. And, and yeah. not, you know, a lot of films are stressful. But it was stressful because there was everything was moving so quickly, and there was mm. so much stuff flying around that um, you know, that was really yeah. my memory of that. And it was early days at the company, so. But he's a really, I mean, he's gone on to great things as well, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll and I'll uh, and if you have a, a different kind of uh, credit here, I will mention it. Uh, end of watch is the next one that shows up executive in charge of music, but uncredited on the, yeah, and, and sort of wanted to know what that was all about again. So, so, uh, that is kind of because the company I worked for had invested money. They own mm-hmm. the score of that movie and season Kent was the supervisor on that. So that's mm-hmm. very much a, um, very much kind of just overseeing the project from a musical point of view and, mopping up anything that falls through the cracks um so i wasn't very hands-on creative with that at all um Mm. i really loved that film i thought it was a Mm. really good film um and i I just loved everything about it really but yeah so my real role on that was just um as a, a running the sort of support team behind what was going on 
Mm-hmm. Uh, music services, cutting edge for side effects. Uh, the Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, I, I, that one I have very little to do with. Again, it was because the um, we're just. I say I had very little to do with it. It's just really back office stuff, making sure everything is organized properly and being available to help if anything is needed, songs and everything, you know, mm-hmm. if if the supervisor needs help um, dealing with that. But it's very much a, you know, we are the music department. As I say, my business partners, Chaz and Megan, who were at Cutting Edge then, would mm-hmm. have been doing a lot. They would have been doing the composer um agreement and things like that so we may well have been doing all of the licensing of the songs that's possible mm-hmm. as well I would have been overseeing that uh mike flanagan's oculus yes well this was an interesting one because i actually suggested the composers the newton brothers for this um mm-hmm. a lot of these horror films i love horror films but there's often very little music in these films yeah so it's really sad because I don't think he's ever used a supervisor again. And obviously the Newton brothers have stuck with him throughout this whole thing. Yeah. This, this great trip that he's been on. And um, the only thing I really did on this, which I was very proud of is I'd, I'd become friends with Paul Oakenfold, who was a big mm-hmm. DJ, uh, you know, yeah. him, right. So, yeah. so I become friends with him and he's a big Chelsea soccer fan. Okay. And he's got <laughs> a house that overlooks the Hollywood bowl. And he's telling me when he, when he took the house, he said the, the realtor was trying to not let people see that the Hollywood Bowl was behind because they'd be worried about it. And he saw this and thought, oh, my God, I can watch all the gigs. So he loved <laughs> it. But I said to, I said to uh, Mike Flanagan, I, I, I think because we're dealing with mirrors all the time and it's all very warped and everything that's going on is very weird, I said it would be great for the end credits to get Paul Oakenfold to do something with a score cue and mess with it and mix it and remix it. And turn it into this kind of very odd piece because I was always trying to get original songs written at Cutting Edge or something different that we might be able to to launch a single from or something. And he said to me, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And he said, but I like the sound of it. And he said, so if it's not going to cost a lot of money to try this out, I'd love to try it. So we did it. And usually I've learned this since, you know, You'll you'll play something to somebody when you get something written uh, fresh, and it, they have to be able to give notes because it's never exactly how they want it. But this cue, I gave it to him, and he cut it in. And he just said, "This is just perfect." He said, "I love nice. it." Nice. So it worked out really, really well. And I, as I say, that's really unusual that it happens like that. But I think, um, again, it's great that he gave me the opportunity to try it. Um, and, you know, and I had been working with the Newton brothers for quite a while before that. I kept trying to get them onto films because they were so talented, but there were also two of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when things got really hairy and deadlines got really tight, they'd go off and work on scenes on their own and then bring them together and mix them together. But I think they've done everything he's done to date. Since mm, then. Yeah. And he's um, done, it's amazing. And I love that film. I mean, that, that's one of the films where you read the script and you love the script and you think, how are they going to do this? Yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, I was like, how is this going to work? Because it's a horror film about a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, how do you pitch that? And 
And I mean, it was just so good. And the act, I mean, obviously in these, all these films, the acting's always got to be amazing, but it's such a good film. I love that film. Um, and then I'm, I imagine your experience on Chef was a lot like End of Watch. Yeah, I mean, again, there was a creative supervisor on that. I had very little to do, and that was getting towards the end of my days at Cutting Edge. So I was sort of didn't have very much to do on that at all. Um, yeah. You know, it's probably why I was uncredited. uncredited. <laughs> I personally haven't seen El Chapo, uh, but uh, you you are uh, heavily credited on that. So is that uh, is that uh, something that you uh, that's a memorable experience? Yeah, I mean that I loved that because th- I, I think it's brilliant. It was one of these, you know, Netflix had recently started. Re- I think realizing that Americans could handle TV shows in foreign languages and mm. and. and and want to watch them which come growing up in england we always used to get french and italian films from the video shop so we were all very used to that to that sort of world and i think in america it was kind of a bit weirder so working on el chapo um they they shot all three seasons at once in colombia because it was too dangerous to shoot it in mexico because of what it was wow. about. Can you believe they went to Colombia because it was too dangerous yeah. to do it? Yeah. <laughs> How about Canada? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure you can find some 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 places that are like Mexico and Canada. Yes, yeah. So um I mean so so the crazy thing about that was that the, the music was flying from all over the place. And again, the thing is I'm not a Spanish person, so what I did on that one was I, I didn't want to give up the opportunity because to be honest, you know, if 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 Music, genre music and everything, you can pick it up pretty quickly. The rules of the game are the same, you know? So if you don't happen to be the biggest sort of classical music boff, you can very quickly research the stuff that you're working with and you're reaching out to people saying, I need a lot of music that sounds like this. I hired um, a guy to help me, um, Josh Norek, because he was a, he's been a music supervisor and is a Spanish guy. And I said, so let's you be my partner on this um, and help me with the different types, Nortenia and Cumbia music and everything that we're going to be using. Um, and <clears throat> he was a great help because he knew the world of Latin music and more importantly, how to clear the music because um, a lot of it signed to major labels. We had tiny budgets. At first we had a big budget, but they wanted to use a big song which took up most of the budget for the three seasons because, again, we were shooting three. They shot 36 episodes at the same time, oh, uh, which I don't think anybody would ever do again. Um, yeah, imagine And uh, it was – but I loved it because I love the music. I love all of the music because it's so – you know, so much of it's parties, fiestas and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love the family culture of the Hispanic world. You know, when I used to go to Madrid and places, just the family thing is just so beautiful and how a father will dance with a daughter. I mean, you know, it just doesn't happen in my world. I'll never <laughs> dance with my daughter. I'm quite sure of that. Um, <laughs> unless it's on TikTok, maybe I'm wrong. There you go. Um, there you go. <laughs> but I really loved El Chapo because I think it's an excellent show. Um I don't know if any of you have seen it, but I'd say if you like Narcos, try and watch it because it's hmm. very gritty and it's very real. And the, the acting is fantastic. He's very believable as Chapo. Um, and I'm very proud of that show. 
because mm-hmm. I really did. I think it did pretty well for Netflix, and it was Univision as well. And mm. um, I knew quite a lot of Hispanic people who would say to me, "Oh my God, you worked on that show!" And it was like, mm-hmm. yeah. but I really, I'm very proud of that because it was a, a, a lot of work, and it stood me in good stead because everybody on the show was really lovely. I mean, you work on films and shows where. You know, you get people, I suppose it's all things in life. When when the going gets tough, they start screaming <laughs> and looking to blame people. Whereas you work on other things where it's like, okay, everybody's trying to fend off any problems that are going to happen. But when things happen, everybody's trying to solve them. So it was like a family on that show. And the showrunners were great. And everybody was really respectful. The, the tough thing for me was my budgets were awful. Yeah, I imagine so. I had no money. And it's very difficult because if you're if you're if if you if I have to recreate music, I had to recreate quite a lot of music for that show with the which I did with the music editor where yeah. because I'd need five musicians, you know, to play at a party, you know, yeah. live music. So you've got to pay everybody. And it was very difficult because the music was the budget was so so small but i honestly believe hand on my heart that we did a great job everything was true to its region in mexico mm-hmm. um because there were everybody i was sending music to and i had the, the help of josh as well and the music editor everything was was true to the region which is very important and respectful yeah. and i think um we did an amazing job and i loved it i really loved it all right. Well, uh, hey, guys, do you have anything else that you would like to ask? I need to watch more of the movies that you're involved with, Andy, because some of these I have not heard of before. Well, I want to I want to ask, uh, do you have any serenity stories? Huh. No. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that movie? It's bonkers, right? Yeah, it's bonkers. It's <laughs> yeah. bonkers. Yes, it is. Yeah, I don't have. Yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to be music supervisor on that film. And uh-huh. it didn't happen because I think it was done out of England. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't seen that. I mean, it's, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I don't have stories, but it. All right. All right. I, okay. I got two questions left. And then, you know, you've been so gracious with your time. I watched uh, some of this uh, Netflix series, Sneakerheads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the music in that is unlike anything that I've seen. Well, I can't say unlike anything, but but very specific to that sort of uh, genre. And it's, it's fantastic. Uh, what has that process been? You've done a few Netflix projects, but how has that been with uh, Sneakerheads? Well, Sneakerheads was, um, I was brought in because the music supervisor they had had been, let's say, let go. Um, mm. And I came in kind of late in the game. And the, the the editor, um, David Blackburn, called me in, and it was basically they were panicking about the music because again the budgets were tiny, but they wanted some big songs as well. So mm. I came in again, another amazing family of people. It was so beautiful to walk in, and everybody's really respectful. And I'm like, okay, I've got to watch this. Okay, now I'm going to send you a list, and they're like, a list. Oh, hallelujah. A list with songs <laughs> that we need to replace and everything. So, I mean, they were just very happy to get some organization. But I said to them, okay, we'll try and get two or three big songs in the show. We got Aloe Black, 
the, mm. the one we ended up having, which was co-written by Elton John, because it's it's a you know using that melody. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but basically, I said we're going to have to find unknown artists because we don't have a big budget, which to me is really exciting. There's nothing wrong with that. I said, mm-hmm. but but you you do find on shows you need familiarity. Um, so often, you know, if you're setting a scene in seventies at a disco, it'd be nice to play. I feel loved by Donna Summer. Okay. But then <laughs> maybe that's overused, but you know what I mean? You're setting the scene and everybody feels comfortable and they're like, I'm here now. So we have yeah. to find a lot of unknown music, but part of a job of a music supervisor is having great contacts of people. There are, there are people called sync reps who rep indie bands. So they'll, sign them up and they'll pitch their music to film and TV placements. So Uh I have a whole network of people like that who I can go to and say, I have this much money for this scene, send me your music. So I'll get sent a hundred cues for one scene, for example. Mm. And I have to go through it and I make a short list and I say to the director, in my opinion, these are the best five. How many do you want me to send? He might say 10, send him 10 tracks that could work. And he kind of picks them. And it's usually the ones you think it's going to be. Mm. Um, or I cut them in. I cut songs into scenes and send it to them. But I think the music on that show, I'm very pleased with that as well because there's there's hardly any known bands. I had to phone a lot of the bands up and say people are hitting me up, asking where they can get the music. You oh, need yeah. to get your music out so that they can start hitting you up on Spotify and everything. So and that's always a nice place to be because you're really taking stuff from the street and giving it life. And then I've had people say to me before, "Oh, you've got this song of mine, an unsigned artist in this film, and I've now had a hundred thousand hits yeah. on something." You know, and does it yeah. turn into money? Well, sadly, you know, we're trying to change all of this where people get yeah. paid more money for for being on Spotify and everything and make things fair. But at the end of the day, this is the game they're in. So exposure is everything. Can yeah. I ask you, what did you think of Sneakerheads? Did you like it? I did. I did a lot. And and this is the the best feeling is, is getting into a show or a movie that is not about anything that you're interested in. I could give a shit about sneakers, right. <laughs> uh, but, but the way that this is presented, the performances in particular and the vibe that it's gotten, I think a lot of that has to do with the music is, is very comforting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think that's just a, it, it puts you in such a, an, a, a sense of ease that it's easy to get into that sort of lifestyle right. and to, yeah. to kind of, you know, empathize with those characters. So I like it very much. And it's very good acting and it's silly yeah. funny, isn't it? I mean, it's it not is. trying to be it too is. pretentious. And <laughs> I have to give a shout out to the composer, Jaime Mazur who basically uh-huh. his job is he, he did a lot of hip hop kind of cues, score cues. And sometimes he's got vocals on them. So sometimes you think it's a song. So he did a really great job of keeping the pace going as well. And, and if I'd love this to get picked up because we did, we, we had, you know, there were, we were playing with having a Chicago song in one love scene, which was so mm. wrong. For the show, <laughs> but it was just brilliant. And I would love to. I said to them when I came on it, I said, please let's just not just use hip hop, right? Let's use soul yeah. and jazz and 
other things, but they were also open-minded. It ended up that we kind of mainly used hip hop on this one, but I think it was for the right reasons. It was because mm -hmm. it was because it set the vibe. But I know if we can pick, if if Netflix picked this up and we got another season and we had some more money, we could make so many jokes out of music in some of these <laughs> scenes with familiar songs that it would be so. I, I just I just know it would be one of my favorite jobs ever because. It's it's like we were talking about before with songs like the end. The song becomes almost the scene. Even yeah. the Aloe Black songs use pretty well when they're going. I'm yeah. the man. I'm the, the, the man. The your song thing. Oh yeah. no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's yeah. it's you know you remember it and you like it. And also, Dre is friends with Innie Clemens, one of the producers. They're very tight. So, mm. the hip hop world and Top Dog Records and everything. It was funny because you get a lot of the times when you're working on a film. Somebody will say, "Oh, my friend's um, Prince's mum," and you're like, "Okay." <laughs> oh, not even Prince's mum. My friend's Prince's mum's cleaner, right? And you're yeah. Like, okay. Okay. And then they're like, "So we can use Prince," and you're like, "Well, yeah, but Prince doesn't necessarily own the music. It's Warner Brothers. We all know about that." Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's not very easy. But on this one. Uh, the producers were like, oh, you know, if we want to try and use something by Dre, we can get in touch with him. Or if we want to use this, we can get in touch with him. And and they were just amazing because they would put me in, in touch with these people, the big shots from the labels and everything, and they would just stay on it and help me. And it was incredible. And And I also know these guys have such good contacts with so many people the the cameos that would be in this show would just be ridiculous. So, it, 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 I, I, you know, I really hope Netflix pick it up. I think Netflix's worry is that it only appeals to sneakerheads. And my thing is, if it was marketed more and it, mm -hmm. and it breathed and it lived and it got to another season, I think you could definitely have a big crossover thing because I think people in England would love it. It's weird. It was number one in, like, Nigeria, South Africa, it was top 10 mm. in 25 countries. I think, because it's the same as you, I, I don't, I was embarrassed to go to the mixes because of my shoes, right? I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I really was. I mean, I was like, Jesus. But they knew immediately. It was like, forget him. He's not, <laughs> he's not one of us. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, it's just a fun show. It doesn't matter what it's about. And, and there's so much that we could do with it musically as well, if we could move on. But I don't know. It's hard to tell. God, I love the idea of using music as the joke and, and the fact that you, you know, have your finger on the pulse of that to where you're like, I, I want to use something completely the antithesis of what is going on uh, visually here. But it's that wrong thing again. It's what's wrong, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. it's, it's and, and it was the Stewie character. He's such so, so, a sort of divvy kind of guy. And everybody mm -hmm. in that show, there's total respect. It's total um, you know, there's ethnicities in the show. It's all over the place. And mm -hmm. everybody, even if somebody's a bit of an idiot, they're not an idiot. They're just funny. Right. They're different. Mm -hmm. And it's him. I'd love to get into the characters and think, what would she what would she listen to? And what would he listen to or what would his dad listen to? You know, and, <laughs> and it's just stupid. It's just being able to use a song um, to knock you off guard in a way. And hopefully... You know, kids. Some lots of kids wouldn't know what the song was, but a lot yeah. of the viewers would know what it was, and they'd be like, you know, again, it's using Ario Speedwagon. Okay, <laughs> there's a band, and they wrote some good songs. But oh yeah, it's you know, 
when does that become a kind of a joke? Well, it's when it's in the wrong place because they'd never, because yeah. the kids, the characters would never be listening to that. Right. <laughs> I have to stop. Uh, you, 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 I, I, I would talk to you all day, but do you, Jesus Christ, you probably have to go like pee or something. By the way, Jeremy is still here. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we forgot to do that every 15 minutes, but uh, <laughs> I, was, I was doing it in my head, so we're good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you have any questions, Jeremy? I haven't. Uh, no, you guys covered everything you. that I, I was planning to ask. I was just uh, really enjoying listening. It was a, it was a fascinating, uh, I guess, couple of hours for me. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank sure. you guys. I'm sorry I do go on a bit, but no, no, no. I'm, no. Telling you. I'm going to you call you what? tomorrow, and we're going to talk tomorrow. <laughs> well, We've I'm been doing, Nashville, and you guys are going to show me around. I'm telling you, that's right. We that's are. Right. Scott we... doesn't go out to bars and things, so <laughs> we will. When we finally can, we will totally take yeah. you out and around in Nashville. One thing that uh, I've realized during the we've been doing a bunch of interviews uh, all year. Um, is that I love it when our guest talks a long time because, uh, you know, it, it just gives us, you know, it, it, you just, it fills in the episode. They give me a lot of information that way. And I can, I can find other questions to come off of that and everything you have a certain, like you usually have your like five or six questions that you write down and then you're like, Oh, that thing that that person said right there it gives me another question and another one and so on. And I love it when people uh, talk. Uh, so I, this is what we're, this is what we're here for is to, uh, to hear your stories and to learn from you and stuff. So um, uh, I'm glad uh, that you came on today. Well, thank you. I really, as I say, I really appreciate it. And I don't know if you've learned anything about music supervision, but um, absolutely. Uh, we, we have, have. We know. It's a completely, absolutely nothing I knew about until today. <laughs> well that's good andy do you want to plug your your instagram or twitter or anything like that or or your website um well if i even knew the handles um <laughs> <laughs> well it's exit strategy is is your company is that yeah. right uh the the website for exit strategy is is always have an exit.com and uh, yeah, Exit Strategy Productions is Instagram. All right. And Twitter, I think I'm just, it's my private one because I wouldn't dare speak for anybody else on Twitter. <laughs> Way too scary. Twitter is scary. I dude. think it's just um, at the Ross Andy one. There we go. Uh, yes, we would like to uh, thank Andy Ross for coming in and giving him, giving his time. Uh, that's going to do it for this week. If you want to go to Sincast uh, uh, presented by CinemaSins on Facebook, CinemaSins uh, Twitter, Music Video Sins Twitter. We're also on SoundCloud and Discord. If you want to get on Discord, you can go to our Reddit page and find the link on the right side there, or you can go to Facebook and uh, private message me, and I will give you a link there. That's going to do it for this episode. It's Chris Atkins and Jeremy Scott and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasends.com. Nice to see everybody with their beautiful waveforms, <laughs> sexy waveforms. I would say I don't feel like I'm out of line when I say they're sexy waveforms. Mm-hmm. There's you not a lot. Out there. Not I just want to, you know, do with it what you what you will. 
Uh, I was born in Liverpool. I, I'll get again. I'm going to get killed when I go back to England for saying this. <laughs> I supported Liverpool until I was ten years old, and then I moved to this town called Watford and yeah. Elton John's club. And I su- started going with my dad to the games every week, and they were in the fourth division. And when I left that town, they were they'd been promoted every season in a row. Really? And they were they ended up second in the top division to Liverpool. Wow. And that was a dream come true because I still love Liverpool. They're so in my heart and I do because my grandparents and everybody loved Liverpool. And one time I actually went to a funeral in Liverpool for my uncle and I was coming back on the train and I lived in Watford and I must have been 11 and I walked down the train carriage through this first class section and there was this music playing really loud and I thought, God, how are these people allowed to play their music this loud? It's disgraceful. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I came through the carriage again and I looked and I thought, oh, that looks like Craig Johnson, the footballer. And I thought, oh, that looks like Sammy Lee, the footballer. And I was in <laughs> the Liverpool FC carriage. They were wow. on their way to a game. And I ran through to my mum and said, get me a pen, some paper. And she had a pencil, a pencil. So I went there and I spoke to the legendary uh, Liverpool manager, Bob Paisley, who won so many titles. I think he won about, probably about 15 trophies. Wow. And he told one of the players to move and he sat me down at the table. And this won't mean that much to you, but it will mean something to people back home. I sat opposite Kenny Dalglish, who became a Liverpool manager, Alan Hansen, who became the Liverpool captain, and Bob Paisley. And I sat at a table with them while they passed around my little autograph thing. And I got all of the players' signatures. And this is a time when Liverpool were winning the league practically every season. And I sat there and I talked to them and they were so funny. I said to Bob Paisley, "Um, when you play Watford, how do you plan for it? And he went, Watford, Watford. He said, oh, we don't play, plan for games like that. <laughs> 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 and he told me he was only joking. But, I mean, they were so amazing. And and that's one of the highlights of my life, to see so many famous people in one place. And they're all legends. I mean, it's one of the greatest teams. It's probably one of the top five greatest teams in British football history. Wow. When wow. it's, uh, what was the big upset that Watford pulled off um, oh, earlier? Be- beating Liverpool 3 0. They beat Liverpool. Undefeated. Interesting. You know, I don't know a lot about uh, soccer. I have watched uh, English Premier League a few times uh, when it's been on, and I, and I enjoy it. It's just not anything that gets me, you know, I got to watch this or whatever. But, um, but uh, I, there was a, I don't even remember what the video was. I don't even remember uh, why I'm saying it, but it was before that happened. I was like, let's come up with something that's really improbable in a sporting event. And I was like, I'm tired of doing American sports. So I went to look at the English Premier League standings. And, um, and I saw that Watford was like really down far you yep. know? <laughs> and I saw that Liverpool was like uh, way up at the top 
And I was like, this is like Watford beating Liverpool and blah, blah, soccer. <laughs> and then like two months later, it happens. And it, uh, there was like a Reddit thing going on. What was the video where they said that? <laughs> and uh, uh, it was like a very uh, amazing moment. You're a stiff sir. Yes, <laughs> but but it was incredible, and and for me it was it was bittersweet because I wanted Liverpool to go the whole season undefeated because only right. one team's done that, and that's Arsenal. And I don't love you know we have this love hate rivalry. I hate Manchester United, obviously mm-hmm. I have to, right. um, but you know. I, I wanted them to go undefeated because Man United have never gone undefeated. So I didn't want Liverpool taking points. I've Watford taking points of Liverpool. But Watford were in so much trouble, ended up getting relegated anyway. So it right. didn't oh, wow. matter. Right. But 3 0, we beat Liverpool. I'm totally outplayed them. It was ridiculous. But I don't, yeah, that's insane. I don't want to stick on football and I don't want to bore you with it. But there was one other time when it, it's one of the most incredible. Um, football things I've ever seen in my life. And I'll send you guys a link to it afterwards. I woke up one morning in LA and at the end of a season, we have playoffs. So if you're trying to get promoted into the Premier League, you get into a playoff system. So Watford were in the semi-final of the playoffs against a team called Leicester, who mm. ultimately went on to win the league at 5,000 to one. Mm, okay. Right. Um, which will never happen again. The, the, yeah. the odds, the odds will never be that high again for any team. So right. Watford were playing Leicester. They were, we play it over two legs, so we play home and away. So I woke up late for the second leg of this game. I wake up late and I'm like, "Oh, I've overslept! I can't believe it! This is madness!" I wake up and Watford are tying, which means they will go through. Okay, because they've scored more in the other leg. Okay, hmm. so. It gets to the last minute. We've played 48 games of the season. We're just about to get to the final. This guy from the other team dives in the penalty area. It's never a penalty, and the referee gives a penalty. Yeah. I mean, 48 games, somebody cheats. It's come down to this. And I thought, I can't believe it. I hate this game. It's mm-hmm. 6 o'clock in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got up. The guy steps up that dived took the penalty, our keeper saved it. It ricocheted back to the guy, he shoots again, the keeper saves it again. Somebody kicks it upfield, this guy's, everybody's going mad, the commentator's going mad, saying, oh my God, he's missed it. The Watford team run up the other end, down the wing, beautiful run, crosses the ball, this guy heads it into the middle and Watford score. Seven, something like 13 seconds after he missed that penalty, Watford scored at the other end. The crowd comes running on the pitch, the players run into the crowd, I'll send you the footage. I, I don't think there's been a better end to any sporting event oh anywhere God. in the world. And if you know of one, send it to me, please. <laughs> yeah. were, you, were you waking up the entire neighborhood at that point at 6 o'clock it. in the morning? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And there's a, com- there's, a, there's a video on YouTube of a commentator that's not allowed to show the game because they don't have the rights to the game. And it's right. just him. And that's better almost than watching the footage of the goal being scored because the guy's going ballistic on live TV. I don't believe what I'm seeing. Oh, I don't. <laughs> anyway, enough of the football because I know it's not something. Was, it's, yeah, it's, I can't. Do a football podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it uh, there being something like that. But like, I remember when Man United was was like dominant for a while there, and they had that legendary coach, and I can't remember the name. Alex Ferguson, yeah, it was a, right. he was a legend, and they played amazing football. So you know, it's hard to hate them. It's a it's a fun hate. 
you know. But they would do that type of thing, right, where it would seem like they were about to be beat, and then in in extra time, they'd always find a way. Always. Uh, You know what he (laughs) called it? You know what he called it? He called it squeaky bum time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm going to use that so much. (laughs) Honestly, he said it on on a live interview. He goes, I I like to call it squeaky bum time. I mean, it's. A, I mean, it, it it fits, right? I mean, oh, yeah. it's insane. Like it, it even as a, a person who doesn't watch very often, I always would see these highlights. I'm like, how'd they do that? Why didn't they do that the whole game? Oh, no. They did it in the European <laughs> Cup final, and Beckenbauer, who's one of the most famous uh, football players ever, German player, uh, won loads of World Cups. He uh, was president of FIFA or something, and he. Uh, Bayern Munich, which was always his team, were beating Man United 1-0 and they were into in overtime. And he went from up at the top of the stadium down in an elevator with the trophy to take it to the field. And he said, I got out. Man United scored two goals in the last minute. <laughs> yeah. oh. 2-1. And he said, I got out of the elevator and the winners were on their knees crying and the losers were running around the field. He, he, he missed the two goals on the elevator trip down because it was squeaky bum time. <laughs> uh, he's, he's an audio guy. He knows what he's doing. This isn't his first rodeo. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're good to get It's my last though, probably. <laughs> <laughs>